Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what's just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode in which you get to get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two AI researchers as to what we think about this news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. We'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our takes. Hello and welcome. This is Daniel Bashir here with Skynet Today's Week in AI. This week, we'll look at the LAPD's use of facial recognition, racist image cropping, a smaller GPT-3, and AI trust. It's well known that police departments around America use facial recognition technology in their work. But the LAPD, which is frequently denied having facial recognition records, and sometimes denied using the technology at all, has been found to be a frequent user. The department does not have its own platform, but does have access to facial recognition software through a regional database. The Los Angeles Times found that between November 6th of 2009 and September 11th of this year, the department has used the software nearly 30,000 times. The LAPD's actions are particularly concerning given the extent of its use, as facial recognition becomes more ubiquitous in areas like policing that could directly impact civil liberties, transparency is vital. Furthermore, as debates around the use of the technology continue, both proponents and detractors should have as much information as possible in order to make informed arguments and decisions about the merits and drawbacks of using the technology. Hopefully, a world with facial recognition everywhere isn't inevitable. But if it is, citizens should at least be able to have some trust that their rights won't be stripped from them. In other controversial news, Twitter came under fire recently for an image cropping algorithm that users found frequently cropped black people out of photos. Zoom has also found itself under the radar. A black professor, when using virtual backgrounds, found that Zoom would remove his head. As TechCrunch reports, Twitter stated that they did their best to evaluate their tool for bias before releasing it, and a scientist later performed an independent analysis to see if the cropping bias was real. Twitter did admit that it likely didn't do enough. The fact that it even crops out black people sometimes, if it doesn't also crop out white people, raises questions. The Twitter and Zoom fiascos point to the prevalence of bad algorithms, and to the fact that industry titans still aren't doing enough to mitigate clear bias in the tools they release for public use. Our next story is more positive but misleadingly titled. AI researchers from the Ludwig Maximilian University developed a version of GPT-3 with 99.9% fewer parameters. While the next web's title dubs it a lean, mean GPT-3 beating machine, the actual article clarifies that the LMU system isn't actually better than GPT-3 or capable of beating it except on a single benchmark. While the smaller system isn't better than GPT-3, the fact that it can beat it on a single benchmark task and boasts similar performance on other tasks does show promise for researchers hoping to push AI forward with more modest hardware. And finally, MIT professor Regina Barzilay became the first winner of the $1 million Squirrel AI Award for AI for the Benefit of Humanity. In a conversation with the MIT Technology Review, Barzilay discussed the lack of public trust holding back AI's progress and ability to make a difference, and her hope that the Squirrel Award will help with that. 
In particular, Barzillay notes that AI does well in areas where the cost of failure is low, like Google translations. But in environments like medicine, a wrong diagnosis by an AI could have serious consequences. While algorithms can do many things better than humans, an answer without an explanation won't do for a doctor. But while some AI decisions might be explainable to humans, others, and areas where we ask AI to do things that humans can't, might not be. Barzillay hopes that we can eventually put more trust into AI. Even in normal times, it can be difficult to adopt AI tools, and in situations like our current pandemic, the thought of doing so seems particularly risky. But our lack of preparedness to react quickly to new threats shows that we need help. If AI is our best bet at getting the help we need, we should find ways to trust it more. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events with Andre and Sharon. Thanks, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you've had a summary of last week's AI news, feel free to stick around a bit for a more laid-back discussion of these news by two AI researchers. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis, as well as apply to medicine. And with me is my co-host... I am Andre Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning. And we can go ahead and start discussing these news stories, starting with Twitter and Zoom's algorithmic bias issues, which is written up in TechCrunch.com. And basically, if you are active on Twitter, you might have seen this where uh, a, s a single demonstration of some weird uh, background behavior with Zoom's virtual background uh, seemed to show that there was some bias with the AI models that uh, no doubt power it. And then accidentally, there was also some issues with the auto-cropping of uh, Twitter, where it crops to a, a square version of the image before you click on it to give you a preview. So yeah, there was kind of a, a big uproar on Twitter and people saying, oh, wow, yet more examples of biased AI. There was a lot of conversations and it, it seems a little more complicated, especially with a Twitter case where maybe it isn't actually racially biased. It seems inconsistent, but uh, still, of course, it's problematic that there are examples where things seem to be off. Uh, Sharon, I don't know how much you are active on Twitter these days. Did you catch what was happening? And uh, yeah, what was your take? I very much was following this. And I was also curious as to how repeatable things were. And it seemed like there, you know, there were definitely cases where people were able to change like the contrast of something and then it would it would not select um, it, it would not select the person who looked, I guess, the most average or white or whatever. Um, and I, I, yeah, I basically didn't know definitively what, what it was, but it definitely raised various issues and problems and almost like a dumber algorithm would have been much more fair. Um, or just letting people kind of choose what a preview might look like. I don't know. There might be a simpler way, I think, to, to have this. 
Yeah, I agree. It seems like to some extent this is about bias in AI and you know issues of AI deployment, but at the other hand, it's also about user experience where maybe you don't want an algorithm to select a preview because you have these uh, you know problematic cases where it highlights the wrong thing. Maybe you want it to be an option whether to use the AI model or not, right? So it, if nothing else, a case study of what could go wrong even if your model doesn't contain bias and maybe how to build tools that leverage AI better. Right, I definitely think so. And uh, I'm, I'm glad the Twitter CTO, Parag Agarwal, uh, thought this was an important question to address. And um, I'm glad Twitter is taking this into account and going to do more experiments and see how, how, can, how they can make this better. But I do think this is very much... Um, uh, something to do with, you know, not just, not just like you, there is this bias, but also like, can we mitigate it? Not just by using another algorithm, uh, but can we mitigate it with, with also tools on the user side too? Cause I imagine if you just gave me a preview of, of what the algorithm thought it should crop, and then I could change it once I saw it, that would be great. And then otherwise it would default to the algorithm. I think that would even be a step in the right direction. Um, Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. I, did, I also found it kind of reassuring that uh, a Twitter spokesperson said that their team did test their bias before shipping a model. So it's good that they are aware of its problems, but it, it does seem like it's also a lesson in giving users control and you know maybe checking on what the models are doing before just doing it. And speaking of using AI algorithms, the next article is despite past denials, LAPD, LAPD has used facial recognition software 30,000 times in the last decade, records show. And this is from the LA Times. So of course, this is a big issue of face recognition uh, that we've seen basically this entire year. Uh, and LAPD kind of uh, <laughs> denying it is very problematic. And especially since it's not very consistent, since the assistant chief Horace Frank actually says it's no secret and actually has testified personally to the fact that they do use uh, facial recognition. Um, so this inconsistent uh, framing around it is also bad. I would hope that they could get their message out a little bit clearer. I wonder who is kind of denying it um, or pushing to deny that. What are your thoughts, Andre? Yeah, I think it's um, interesting, of course, that they denied it in the past, but now it turns out that there's been a lot of use of this technology. And it's another example where even if you do think police should be able to use facial recognition, we can probably all agree that there should be transparency as to what technology are we using, has it been checked for bias and accuracy, and what are their practices for using it. So another example where right now it doesn't seem like this is usually done and maybe we should be pushing for it across the board. And yeah, that's, I guess, pretty much all that there is to say on that. Something good to know that, <laughs> or at least useful to know that there is such use. And uh, then we can move on to something maybe a little more positive, but also still discussing the future of AI, which is the piece in the technology review, uh, We're Not Ready for AI, says the winner of a new 1 million AI prize. And this is about uh, Regina 
Barzilay, a professor at MIT's Computer Science and AI Lab, who is the first winner of the Squirrel AI Award for Artificial Intelligence for the Benefit of Humanity, which uh, recognizes outstanding research in AI. And she has a very interesting story where she originally did research on natural language processing, but after surviving breast cancer in 2014, switched her focus to uh, using machine learning to detect cancer. And this is essentially an interview with her and uh, where she kind of uh, has the perspective that we don't trust AI enough right now to deploy it in potentially very useful ways. Uh, I guess in this case, particularly for medicine, um, you know, humans working alongside AI, using our predictions, using the systems could be better together, right? But her case is we're not ready. We don't have that trust. We don't have that understanding. And so, uh, especially in a time of COVID where we might be benefiting, we aren't. Uh, that's my understanding. So kind of an interesting perspective and certainly something we should be mindful of, uh, given that she just won this award and has done great work. What do you make of her uh, position, Sharon? Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised about some of the points she raises in her interview, because to me, they f they feel like something that I've seen uh, that I've, I, I felt um, for the you know, past year or so, but more recently I haven't felt this as much. And I, I hate to say this, but it feels naive almost like her reasons are valid, but they feel like they're not going the next level deeper, uh, where the, uh, actually CMS, which is the big, um, CMS just approved viz.ai. So essentially this is a medical, this is Medicare and Medicaid being able to be billed for like AI is able to bill Medicare and Medicaid, um, and that this is like a huge announcement that recently went out and that's just like enormous for AI. And I didn't realize that Viz AI already was in like 500 something clinics. And I, I just, yeah, I didn't, basically, I think, I think saying that it completely is not possible is, uh, is not very, it's not actually that valid having seen it be more and more possible from a lot of these companies and, um, I think she said, like, even now, six months later, it's not obvious how we get data. Well, a lot of the groups I've worked with, it's taken two or three years to get data. But if you're patient, you'll you'll get it. So I guess it was a little bit weird to read this because I, I know she probably is like has spent a lot of time in the space, but it just sounded really naive, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, to hear your perspective as someone who works on AI and medicine. And certainly these are broad generalizations. So she's painting with a uh, broad brush here. Um, definitely, we, we have tackled similar topics here on how to encourage human AI calibration and that you need some sort of understanding of a system and its limitations and so on. So the overall theme here is one we need to kind of think of. Although, as you say, perhaps there are also counterpoints to ones she says. Right, right. And I think like everything she said is valid. It just sounds like it doesn't have, it sounds like someone who just kind of learned about the field as opposed to has been working in it for uh, six years. Yeah, and perhaps she said these comments to a broader audience and then it was intended for technology review readers and less so for fellow researchers. Right, uh, right. Yeah. 
And on to a more positive note about using robotics, how humane is the UK's plan to introduce robot companions in care homes? I suppose not exactly necessarily positive, but it is perhaps a viable alternative. Yeah, so the quick version is some UK care homes are about to deploy robots in an attempt to help with loneliness and boost mental health. And these are very simple robots that can sort of move around, have some very simple conversations, play music, and do these sorts of very simple routines. It's sort of like an Alexa on wheels you can think of. And so, um, yeah, there is a question of how humane is it? So it can probably help to have someone to talk to, but is it worse to have these non-human entities where the real problem can be addressed in perhaps more humane ways of actually having people visit or something like that. Um, yeah, it's kind of a question. Personally, I think as long as other avenues are also explored, this is very, isn't the only way that mental health and loneliness are addressed. I'm all for it. I think, you know, as you've seen from video games, as we've seen from, you know, different toys, having inanimate objects to interact with can kind of boost your mood and, and be enjoyable. And I, I do think it's a positive development overall. How about you? What's your uh, response to this, Sharon? Yeah, I think as long as it doesn't cause like, you know, afterwards make people feel sad that they're actually alone or something and they only have a robot. But I, I think it would be a positive thing to introduce these into various care systems, um, especially since I've learned some of these nursing homes or elderly care facilities are pretty bad. Like it's, you have human interaction, but it's not human interaction you would desire. Um, and oftentimes those people are not treated very well. Uh, and that's really sad to me. So if a robot can treat a human better than another human being, I, I would be all for that. And I imagine that's what it would be designed to do, hopefully, um, as opposed to a domineering robot, like more of a stuffed animal cuddly toy. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess we, we broadly agree. Uh, and the piece itself is sort of saying that only if this is kind of used to paper over larger problems and gaps and funding is as bad. Uh, but, you know, as an additional measure on top of other things to help with improving uh, care homes, certainly this could be okay. Right. And with COVID and stuff like this, I, I think it almost becomes one of the very almost necessary avenues if we do want to deliver care in some way um, and perhaps safest avenues. Um, yeah, since humans are, are dangerous now because we're uh, vectors of disease. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> and on to our last story, a bit more of a business story, but also kind of developments in AI that are kind of interesting. <laughs> um, we got OpenAI is giving Microsoft exclusive access to its GPT-3 language model, uh, which was Surprise, yeah, covered in technology review. And uh, yeah, we are, it's broadly what the title says. Of, uh, we know OpenAI collaborated and got a bunch of money from Microsoft. And then just this week, or just last week, it was announced that whatever it means, there's some sort of exclusive license. So I guess Microsoft owns GPT-3 now. 
And yeah, a lot of people in AI joked, oh, wow, you know, how open is OpenAI? But now there's exclusive licenses for models, which is a whole other thing we haven't seen yet really happen. Um, yeah, so I suppose not necessarily surprising, but uh, kind of a new development to have a model have an exclusive license. Hard to say if this is more of a PR move or more of a business move. I don't know. What What do you think, Sharon? Uh, I think all the jokes about closed AI are true. <laughs> it is very disappointing to see how a nonprofit turns into a for-profit company but tries to pretend they're a nonprofit to help themselves. It It's kind of wolf in sheepskin. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, that being said, I think Microsoft has made an incredibly smart business move as they generally have been in technology. I've actually been really impressed with them since I kind of honestly expected them to die um, because like Microsoft Word kind of sucks and same with Internet Explorer. So um, I, yeah, I think Microsoft has been very smart about various acquisitions they've made and um, medium sort of acquisitions they made, I guess, with OpenAI or like having... We're putting a, injecting a lot of cash into them and as a result, having a lot of ownership. Um, yeah, I, that, that is, that's my take on that. Um, like, yeah, Microsoft's VS code acquiring GitHub have all shown me that I think it, this company is here to stay and this very much reinforces that. Um, yeah, it's not a Yahoo yet. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. They are forward looking and certainly, if nothing else, this does position them as a power of an AI even more so than they already have been. And I think from a public perspective viewpoint, they've been probably lagging a bit behind Google and Facebook on that front. Um, people, you know, uh, a lot of people did say this is unfortunate. The common reply is, well, OpenAI spent millions to develop this model. They have to monetize it somehow, which is also fair. So it's it's a little bit, um, you know, simplistic to just say they should have open sourced it. But at, on the other hand, I do think, you know, if they call themselves OpenAI, they say they want to d democratize AI and give access to it. And so far, they've really been going in the opposite direction. So if they want to really um, you know, push for this vision that they want to democratize AI and be open and be beneficiary, they should show how they want to do that. And uh, it seems like they want to do it less and less, especially based on this move. Right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and review if you like the show. Be sure, Be sure to tune to in next week. week.